0: Many a Christian, many Christians, have joined in with Scripture with the prophets like Jeremiah, looking around themselves, looking at what they see in the world, and they want to ask and I'm sure you have done this yourself I want to ask God what they're seeing. How is it that we see what we're seeing? Why, Father, when will justice, when will it be given? And punishment come to the profane and cruel and ungodly people of the world. Yeah, we've, we see that in the prophets. We, we've been through the book of Jeremiah. We see these questions being asked. You know, we being made in the image, being made in the likeness of God, we have that need to see justice being served. It's not a need only felt by us Christians, but by the vast majority of the world. Arguably, every person has their own view of what justice looks like they want to see it served. Now, indeed, our measure of justice between what we believe and what the world believes will often be vastly different, you know, understanding where social justice has gone these days, for example. but justice is a communicable trait of God's that he has given to mankind. For the Christian, for you and I, true justice includes seeing that God is rightly feared. The innocent is protected. One of the biggest cases of corporate fraud and Theft in the US history happened here in Houston some 22 years ago when that charade of an energy company called Enron, their schemes had played out, came out into the open. Now they had, if you may or not know or remember, they cooked the books. They really cooked those books for years with accounting practices that hid losses and hid failed investments. Some of us remember that aftermath. It was tremendous. That cost still impacts companies across the US, across the world today. We're still paying for it. Thousands of employees who had nothing to do with the scams found themselves suddenly jobless. Even some of them financially ruined. I I knew some of the people caught in that mess. It It was hard to watch. Some semblance of justice did come quickly to those chiefly responsible for having to, being part of it, serving prison sentences. Some of them did. But why, why would a handful of people, these responsible persons, why would they go to such great lengths and take such great risks to defraud investors, even defraud their employees? Why would they risk so much? It was for the hardened, in their hearts, the hardened pursuit of the wrong treasure for the wrong thing, the wrong treasure. So much so that it blinded the people that it possessed into becoming objects of fraud. They became what they pursued. Sin does that. It becomes to characterize the person who loves it. Their lives changed from having fabulous riches to lives of despair and misery. In our passage today, we, in the beginning of James chapter 5, so turn there, James chapter 5, in our passage today, the apostle continues with the same theme, really, from the end of chapter 4, which is a pursuit of wealth that fails to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And his will for men. Ignoring his sovereignty and his decreed will. So, turning to James 5, let's read verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In this passage, James warns the rich of the miseries coming upon them for their pursuit of the wrong treasure in life gained at the expense of those who labored in their fields even the life of the righteous person James's style of writing here you know maybe you caught on to this it's it's very reminiscent of the prophets of old in the old testament pronouncing doom doom on Israel's neighbors, for example. Without reservation, James attacks the righteous or the rich person in defense of the righteous person. He attacks him. There's no hint of even exhortation in here. There's no, it's not a warning other than it is an attack. It is a denunciation. There's no message of hope here. Again, reminiscent of much of what we read in, in Jeremiah when we went through there. Now, I, I believe we can safely understand that his rebuke is it's for both the rich and the powerful. You know, uh, the unrighteous rich, the unrighteous rich and powerful. You know, both riches and power they go hand in hand, don't they? Often in this world, and both equally have the potential to corrupt and do the same damage both being rich and powerful. Authors Dale Ellenberg and Christopher Morgan, they had something to say here. I want to share it with you. They said, quote, the way that we earn and save, spend money, is one of the most telling barometers of our spiritual lives. As believers, we need to learn to develop and maintain a scriptural view of wealth. Money is a root of all kinds of evil if it is not yielded to the lordship of Christ. So a good question for ourselves then is, do we overestimate the value of money? Godless materialism will face God's sure and stern judgment can not escape the words of James in this passage. You no know, earthly possessions can be deceptive gods of their own, but they cannot sustain life. They're of no value at all. These idols, when God's final verdict is rendered, there is no refuge in these idols. But what we find here is God is attentive and concerned for the poor. And those unjustly oppressed. And we see scripture consistently affirming this point. Another good question for ourselves then is do we give unjust offense to the poor and the oppressed? It's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. Not becoming too comfortable in our lifestyles it takes wisdom to know how to apply these truths and principles. Well, in our passage, James warns the unrighteous, rich and powerful of the miseries coming upon them for their avarice, their extreme greed and cruel pursuit of the wrong treasure in life gained at the expense of the helpless, the innocent, of the dependent, even at the expense of the lives of the Godly. His warning is for the believers also to hear and tremble. Acknowledging this and seeing what awaits the greedy pursuits of the unrighteous, rich, and powerful, how will you then live? How will you then live? When do you have too much? The verses before us, they denounce the lifestyle and cruelty of the unrighteous rich. There's no doubt. And in that pursuit of wrong treasure, how they go about it. I have three applications from this text. when I I want to show how um, we see this denouncement of James come through. The first one is, let the judgment of the unrighteous rich... In their pursuit of wrong treasure, let the judgment be both an encouragement and a chastisement to you. Let it be both an encouragement and a chastisement to you. We see this in verse 1, beginning there in verse 1. In verses 2 and most of verse 3, there's another application I want you to see. Which is contemplate the waste and poor stewardship as one pursues the wrong treasure in this life. And do better. Do more than just see it, do something about it as God gives opportunity. And then, thirdly, the very end of verse 3 through the, verse 6, the third application is to witness, to, to see. Don't be naive in how the unrighteous rich go about their pursuit of wrong treasure and see how the righteous person might endure. My desire for you, church, is to heed the warning given in this text and to consider what punishment awaits those who make money and power their God. And let that move you to do better and please our Lord. With that, point number one. That first application, let the judgment of the unrighteous rich in their pursuit of the wrong treasure, let that judgment be both an encouragement and a chastisement to you. Well, he begins, the apostle begins this passage the same way he began the passage that we, I last preached on at the end of chapter 4. He says, come now, listen up, he says, pay attention. I have stern words for you to live by. Well, something definitely different from the last passage is the people who James is directly addressing. The people are different. He's addressing someone else. Come now, he writes, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James is no longer... In this passage here, addressing the church, the believers, directly. His message is to the unrighteous rich. He addresses the rich multiple times in his letter. He's done it beginning in in verse 10 of chapter 1. There he exhorted the rich brother, so in this case a Christian, uh, the rich brother to to boast in his humiliation. To not be conceited and, and proud and arrogant in his, in his life. To take special care to remember how his pursuits are transitory in this life. In our prior passage, the one, again, we just went over at the end of chapter 4. James, he exhorted the merchant, the businessman, among them. Among the church, who was relatively considered rich in James's day. To consider what his life is, what is his life while here on earth? It's a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But now he addresses the rich differently. His audience is no longer part of the church to whom he writes. Again, the unrighteous rich. This can be attested to, I believe, by seeing the condemnation that's being denounced against them, that was pronounced upon them. No visible member of the church would have had these words said about them. As you carefully read these words, there's no denying these are unbelievers that he's addressing directly. James commands them. He issues a command, which again, very much sounds like something you would read in the Old Testament given by a prophet. He commands them to weep and howl. Not just cry, but a howl. A distinct sound of despair. One that is absent of hope. He utters a threat in the imperative form, issuing this command. This emphasizes the sureness of judgment. There's a reason James gives for their hollow and grave sounds of despair. Miseries are coming upon them. You know, we can think of how the people of Jerusalem felt, just imagining after the Babylonian siege broke through the walls, even the time leading up to those final moments of slaughter. Imagine the starvation while the siege was still underway, the hopelessness that would have cloaked them, the feeling of abandonment. We even see mankind scraping the bottom of the barrel and the atrocities that mothers and fathers did to survive. These horrible things were things that God had threatened upon them if they broke covenant with him. It was to be expected. And now... The rich, James addresses, they hear a message of terror on every side. God had said what would become a man should he reject him for his idols. Trusting in these idols that became their destruction. I was read today you know it's it's not impossible for us to imagine the kind of misery that was felt by the Jews after their city had been destroyed in particular the temple being destroyed you know wondering how would they practice their religion it was so central to the to the temple now they're taken in exile And we sang that song the hymn of the month last week. We sing it this morning again. Psalm 137. It was addressing this tragedy. By the waters of sorrow we sat, the song goes, quiet. Our harps hung in the midst. Tears of memory fell from our eyes. Sorrow for shadows of home. Such misery. Longing for what they have lost. We know, we can have an imagination of what it's like. Some of you have suffered in such a way, not exactly as the Jews did, but in ways that test the limits of mankind. Judgment was surely coming to the rich man who made it his life's mandate, that made it his religion to pursue the wrong treasure. Beloved, this this very solemn thing that we're reading here, these words of James, that we're imagining witnessing, the righteous judgment of God coming down on a sinner. We should take heed to let this judgment of the unrighteous be a chastisement to us, a chastisement to you to forsake the pitfall that is so common To the wealth of the world. In other words, isn't it better to learn from the mistakes of others? It is. How many times have you said that, that you wish you could do? That's part of the reason what we have here in this text. James, even though he's not addressing believers, it's written to believers. Fear and tremble, he says. Christ said in Luke 18, verse 25, he said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth and power are among the most potent opiates of the world. Dulling the mind, dulling the heart to all else that are truly more important, creating an insatiable craving for more, no matter the cost. Be careful, beloved, to estimate what truly is valuable and of eternal value. God will not suffer his child to be lost and die in apostasy, but he will chastise him severely to bring him back onto that right path. Some of us receive a light beating and some of us a severe beating to get us back on that right path. Let's take this chastisement for our own instruction. Also, beloved, let the demise of the unrighteousness be an encouragement to you. Let it encourage you. I'm not saying that you should rejoice when your enemy falls, nor let your heart be glad when he stumbles. But I say you should rejoice in the justice of God. It will come. Proverbs 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. James knew the suffering of the church, what they were experiencing at the hands of the rich. They were the ones who were dragging them off to court, making their lives miserable. He knew that his prophetic pronouncement of impending judgment aimed at the rich would not likely be read by them. At least not in any large number. His words should be taken by the church as sort of a looking through a window To witness what God is doing and what He will do and learn from that themselves. So there is both instruction and encouragement for them in hearing His pronouncement of doom. God sees them, and His love for them is is as strong as ever, and He will repay the wicked for their deeds. They needed to understand that as they were severely oppressed. Beloved, you too must take courage and encouragement in the justice of God. It will come. Don't be like the Jews of Malachi's day that bemoaned the patience of God, the providence of God, ascribing to God injustice, Don't be like the Jews of that day. Because God sees. Also, let their impending judgment, let it be a reminder to you of the seriousness of God's law. He means business. He will do what he says he will do. He means to carry out his decreed will perfectly and completely. Don't become another statistic of a person who at one time professed Christ enthusiastically, but whose faith was choked by the thorns of the world and its pleasures. These are stern warnings. That's the first application from this text. The second one is to contemplate the waste and poor stewardship as one pursues the wrong treasure in his life and do better. In verses 2 and most of verse 3, the apostle lists a portion of the miseries that are coming upon them, upon that, those unrighteous rich. Now surely hellfire awaits these people. But even while they live and at their moment of death, the, those wrong treasures which they pursued, they would vanish. They wouldn't be of any help. They'd become their destruction. They'd become worthless in every sense. You know, to see life's work go up in smoke, like we read, I think it was J.R. who read our New Testament passage this morning, those merchants of Babylon, who reveled in that city's offer of worldly pleasures only to eventually wail at the sight of its destruction. James, he lists some of the riches that were being hoarded, that were being abused, being wasted, not put to good and right use. Likely food was what was being described at the beginning of verse 2. You know, Since it rots, it rots, your riches have rotted. It's likely food that he's talking about there. You know, one of the distinctions about being rich in ancient times, we know, was they possessed an inordinately large amount of food compared to the average person. So much so that being fat was a sign of wealth. In Job 15, a life is, he monologues here about the, the character of man that does not fear God. And he says that he talks of this unwarranted trust being placed in riches. And in verse 27 of Job 15, how such a man has, quote, covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist. This is a sign of wealth in those days. It's a picture of hoarded food. Garments are another item that James lists here. Garments are moth eaten, he says. You no doubt mankind can amass a wealth represented in the clothing that a person possesses. You know, we've heard stories of the average day Joe walking into a clothing store and you know one that's been primarily frequented by the fabulously rich and then being insulted for the staff by the staff because obviously you're in the wrong place i've heard stories maybe you haven't it's insulting but that's the attitude that's being spoken of here the same attitude existed in james day and then james Names the corrosion of gold and silver. That's the tarnish and dross that can build up on the hordes of this wealth. Again, not being used properly. He says that this corrosion serves as evidence, irrefutable evidence, of the unlawful hoarding of this gold and silver. You know, if they had used the gold and silver to trade and to create an economy for useful things, that treasure would not have sat there and collected corrosion. It would have been used in a good way. Proverbs 11, verse 26 reads, The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. This hoarding that they do, the unrighteous rich, You know, the rich can't not sweet talk their way out of the evidence of corrosion. It's there to see. Making a profit. Making a profit is not sinful. Man is sinful. It is right and good to make a reasonable profit from selling grain and and other things. And to save and to provide for the future. But to hoard such riches, it's stupid. It's stupid. It's stupid because it ignores how transient the nature of this life is. What you need to see, beloved, is how the rich wrongly use such wealth and do better. The problem is not having wealth, but what you do with it, or even what you're not doing with it. For starters, they use their wealth in destructive ways. For example, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses instructs Israel that when they lend money, especially to the poor, that the cloak of the poor man given in pledge must be returned to him at night so that he has a means to keep warm. the rich that James condemns has taken what was given in pledge by his commonwealth brother, knowing it represented a means for him to live, and yet cruelly withheld it, ignoring God's law, not to mention the, the likely scenario of exorbitant interest rates, Trapping the poor making them become indentured servants. Now, lending money as a lawful means, as using it as a means to take advantage and steal from those who counted upon mercy from the rich, but were given a snake instead, as a, a father would never give a child a snake, as the passage reads. Giving them something harmful. Possessing even the person. That's why, beloved Solomon, King Solomon states the obvious relationship that the debtor has with the with the lender, slave to the lender. Now we are in a fallen world that we live in. We must take caution. We must be wise. However, the rich had used their wealth for good instead of hoarding it, then the moths, the the rot, the corrosion would not have destroyed. These destructive elements, they affect things that are stagnant, just sitting there. Moths don't eat garments when the clothes are being worn. Food does not rot when it's in the process of being prepared, when it's being eaten. And again, precious metals do not corrode and tarnish and gather, collect dross while they're being actively traded. There's a story of uh, the covetous man who constantly hugged his many bags of gold, hugged them. He never opened them. He never looked inside of them. He never used the treasure. So when the thief came and stole the gold and left his bags full of pebbles in his room, he was as happy as when he still had the gold. It's it's like the sickness that we read about in fairy tales. Dragons, you know, this dragon sickness. You know, when... That bewitches its owner. And wanting nothing but gold. Not doing anything with it. Forsaking fellowship. Even food for more gold. Just as a dragon broods over his loot. That's the picture we have here. Such is the modern day miser. Wanting nothing more than the next dollar. This is such A clear picture of the bondage of sin. It says, James says in verse 3 it will eat your flesh like fire, it will consume you, consume the mind, and eventually the body. So see it, beloved, and fearfully take note. This is all an argument against hoarding and not using. But as you know, even using such wealth can be just as evil as if it was used in an unrighteous way. Okay? We must do better as Christians. As God blesses us and gives us opportunities, you know, God has given mankind the charge to take dominion of the earth and to rule it to use its abundant bounty, and as providence sees fit to allot to each man in ways that ultimately bring glory to God and spread his name to the ends of the earth. That's a proper use of these resources. It takes wisdom, humility before God. Scripture tells us that a Christian has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever if he does not provide for his relatives, especially the members of his household. So using the money we receive to care for our family's need is paramount, what they need. You know one of the statements that we have in our church covenant asks if the potential church member would be willing to use his or her monies to contribute to the needs of the church to share in your earthly blessings. You know, besides the practical needs of the church being met and the needs of the staff, the collection the church receives is used also to bless the ministry of Christ outside of our local church. In the desire to see the glory of Christ being spread among the nations. It's a proper use of these riches. Of such wealth. It's truly a blessing to be able to give to someone in need. To be able to do that. One of the losses that a Christian can suffer. That is one of the loss of a blessing. Is the inability to be able to share as he likes. Because of prior poor stewardship. Not because he doesn't have it. But because of poor stewardship. Now, God has the power to reverse this in a person's life, the effects of poor stewardship. He can help the Christian climb out of financial problems. But not to the point of godless independence, like so many of us desire, even though we would never say those words. But out of painful debt, in his due time, it requires faithfulness and contentment and what you have in him what we use in these resources that god has given to us in proportion to how providence determined it we can do better than these unrighteous rich that hoard it the point is given the wealth that god ascribes to a person uniquely describes to a person, it can and must be in use in ways that are in accordance with the spirit of Christ. We must do better than the unrighteous rich. And we can only do this relying on Christ and the spirit's guidance in his word and knowing what it is and how we can do better. This brings me to my last application which is to witness to see to not be naive and how the unrighteous go about their pursuit of wrong treasure how are they doing this see also how the righteous person might endure and take encouragement from that there's a lot here in these remaining verses in this overall passage here verses 1 through 6 if you look at it and you analyze the text, it reads like cause and effect. Only James begins with the effect and ends with the cause. Why are the rich commanded to weep and howl? How is it that their wealth has wasted away? The, the moth-eaten garments, you know, the, the rotted food... How is it as their wealth has wasted away? These are the effects of sinful living. The sinful living that he describes in the remainder of the passage. Verses at the end of verse 3 through verse 6. These are the causes of such misery. At the end of verse 3, James begins by describing what is the cause for the rich person's misery, saying... You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Reach the ears of the Lord of hosts. Like a list of grievances. James writes the phrase, you have. He writes it four times here in this passage, four times. Circle that, four times in this passage. He laid it up. He laid up treasure to hoard it, lived luxuriously, fattened your hearts, and condemned and even murdered the righteous person. These are the causes of what came upon them. This is how they did it. This is how they used it unrighteously. The particular sin of the rich that James announces begins with their hoarding. Hoarding it, not realizing the times they are in. They are in the last days. We, church, are in the last days. Recall the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. Jesus... Here in this chapter, he warns disputing brothers over an inheritance. He says to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them a parable of a wealthy landowner basking in the glow of his many gathered crops, praising himself for his Financial independence. Not a care in the world. But God said to them, Scripture says, But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is how they do it. Probably the most vivid scene we have in our passage is the picture of the wages of the laborers crying out. It's, verse four is rich with multiple themes. You know, work ethic, oppression, fraud, theft, injustice, idolatry, vanity. But I believe that mostly, mostly the kind and caring condescension of God and how he hears our prayers. And in in this case, hears our cries to him. That ever-tightening grip that the wealth has had on the heart of the rich landowner has squeezed out any compassion that he may have had. Despite already having that large bank account. He craves the relative pennies of the poor. Even worse, the wages that he owes those workers who have helped him to get rich, those workers who depend upon their daily wage, the wages themselves crying out, being stolen, abducted, you now it's it's helpful for us to understand the context here uh, of those people in the first century near east there was a an increasing concentration of land in the hands of a very small group of very very wealthy landowners and as a result many farmers like a tenant farmer if you will were forced to earn their living hiring themselves out to these rich landlords And so the importance of very prompt payment would have been very important for them. They often got by these laborers. They often got by on a barely a subsistence level of living. And they needed a steady income. They needed that daily bread for themselves and their family. It was life or death. You know, credit wasn't available to them, not readily available. So when the workers weren't promptly paid, and given the amount that they were owed, it jeopardized life itself for them. Both the wages and the laborers and the harvesters, they cry out, And have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the armies of heaven. Fear and tremble, you rich. It's the Lord of hosts who hears their cries. Like the blood of Abel cried out, and God heard it, and how it testified against Cain. So does the stolen wages. The workers testify against their rich employer. You know, there's a balance that must be properly maintained by us. For those of us who have an employer, you know, most of us in the workforce do. We must learn to be content, right? Content with the wages that God has given us in His providence, that He has granted to us, just as the soldiers were instructed by Christ to be content with their wages not try to extort. Trusting in God's provision and in his sovereignty. But we living in a free society where the job market is a free market to sell our skills, it's good to know your worth as a worker. What you can demand, right? In a good way. You have the freedom to go get another job if it pays better. And by all means, go for it. But you are not free to take another job without consulting God. You're not, dear brother, dear sister. You're not. You're not free to not ask God for wisdom in doing this. The work must be righteous labor. Nothing shameful. You must be careful to not let it sink your priorities, like taking away from leading your family, Or from being able to regularly gather with the saints on the Lord's Day. The thing is, this is not as black and white as we would like it to be. And in every instance, it requires wisdom on how to rightly apply the principles of Scripture. You must take these things to the Lord. The point is that how we apply the truth of scripture in the face of being defrauded by our employer should be a comfort to us because God does see. He does hear what his children are going through. And he does give wisdom when we ask for it to know how to change the situation or to endure with their wealth. In these stolen wages, the rich have indulged themselves in luxurious living. This is kind of like the Robin Leach of luxurious living, if you will. Some of you may not know who I'm talking about. Um, The rich and famous, indulging themselves, living in pleasure, is what James is getting at. Thomas Manton comments here. He says, the truth is that God allows us He allows us to use pleasures, but not to live in them. To take delight, but not for them to take us. To live always at the full. That's just mere wanton luxury. In their luxury, the rich, says James, have fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. Friends, I know we hear that word often being advertised, When it comes to fine goods and nice watches, you want luxury. We equate it to quality. I think, at least I do. I think most of us do. But it doesn't have very good humble beginnings in that word luxury. Okay? It doesn't necessarily mean the same to us today in all cases. But Calvin noted regarding that phrase in verse 5 about how all of this, the fattening of their hearts and living in luxury, how they fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter. He he said that in a day of slaughter means that the rich feasted themselves every day of their life because they immersed themselves in perpetual indulgences. Basically, their hearts grew fat and unfeeling at this point. Uh, Dull hearts, not able to feel any compassion, care about anyone but themselves, even being driven to madness, so much that they extort, they, they fraud, they cheat, they, they break the Sabbath. They encourage the breaking of the Sabbath, craving the very little that the poor had to offer, condemning and even murdering the righteous person, James says, the links that they would go to. Sin had run its course like it always does when it's not repented of and when it's indulged in. That is the warning we should be taking here. In this case, it starts out with perhaps discontent. I'm not happy with this prophet. I want more. And it ends with murder. How is it murder? How how is the righteous one being murdered here? Well, it could be the plain and obvious killing of someone. For what they have in a premeditated way. It could be that. You know, Jezebel did that for Ahab, that garden next to his home. But most likely it's the slow death of starvation in the ancient context of James's letter. The poor worker of that day lived literally day by day, as was already mentioned. Leviticus 19 speaks of the requirement to pay the laborer his wages each day, saying the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. It was wrong and evil for the rich to do it back then, and it's wrong for employers to do the similar today to their employees. Just as James's readers were to witness the judgment of the miseries coming upon their rich oppressors and learn from their lesson of greed Those of us, those of them who command the salary of employees, if you have that power, be careful that greed does not enter your heart and entice you to do the same. Consider this, beloved. God sees and hears. Vengeance is his, and he will repay. And then the very last sentence in our passage, kind of going... How does that fit into this? That last sentence. He does not resist you. The last sentence in our passage, James writes of this righteous person who has been condemned, even murdered, is that he does not resist you. He doesn't resist you, wicked person, you unrighteous, rich person. The righteous, rich person doesn't, does not the righteous person, not the righteous rich person, the righteous person, the, whom James, James is writing about here, he doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. He didn't have much power to do anything anyways. He relies solely upon the mercy of God and the grace of God for daily bread and for justice. I'm going to conclude here. Church, you are most... Precious, you are most precious and beautiful to your Lord and Savior and to God, most fair in His sight. Don't think for a second that He is not patiently contending for you. If you must believe this, He is with you in these times, as in all moments when you must endure. In John Piper's book entitled Providence I want to share this with you he, he asks the question for his readers he asks why does God go about the process of our sanctification slowly enduring these things like from the unrighteous rich we know that sanctifies us as we endure but why does it have to be so slow you know, have you ever thought about that you know surely enduring the cruelty and theft of those who have power over you tests your faith. That does test your faith. It's meant to sanctify you and purify your faith. But why not being, why not just be sanctified in a moment? Why, why have to deal with the sin? Why not all be over at conversion? Well, there, there's a lot of good reasons that scripture gives us for that answer. But I want to close on This what I would think is a blessed answer that I'm grateful for John Piper pointing out. He writes, he says, quote, the aim of God's providence is to glorify more than just Christ's power over Satan. It's more than just to show his power over Satan. God aims for the fullness of Christ's beauty and worth To be magnified in the way his people prefer him over what Satan offers. I want more of Christ. This is what we should be after, he writes. More than what Satan offers through the world. Christ's worth and beauty are magnified in proportion to our preference for them over all that Satan can offer wanting more to witness Christ's worth and beauty. God intends for Satan to be defeated in this age, not merely by being shown to be weaker than Christ, but also by being shown to be less beautiful, less valuable, less desirable, less satisfying. That's another way Satan is crushed. Beloved of God, As you patiently suffer for the name of Christ, whether it's at the hands of the unrighteous rich, in honest labor, your faithful witness of any kind, you take comfort in knowing that every time you choose to honor Christ and endure and not give into Satan's scheming to make you feel better in some sinful way, to get you out of a circumstance in some hasty and unwise way, But to choose Christ, you choose to instead to go to God, pleading your need for him. And when you do this, Christ is honored. And the devil is crushed just a little bit more under your feet. Every time you endure, every time you endure, Satan is belittled more and more. And Christ is honored. James tells us to heed the judgment that he declares upon the rich. To rejoice in God's justice. Tremble at his wrath. To make your calling and election sure. Do better than those rich who have the resources of the world at their fingertips. Because you can do this. You belong to the one who made the heavens and the earth and commands it from his throne in heaven. Endure. Endure it in a growing knowledge of the Lord and how He sustains you. And as you contemplate, crushing the devil a little bit more under your feet every time you choose Christ over what the world offers, consider it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For this honors Christ and it frustrates the devil. Let's pray.